Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, it is only because of your grace that we could sing these words, only your grace by which we could be here under your word. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you have made us alive to give us ears to hear. We pray even now as we hear from your word that you would do with us as you will. We pray that we would be conformed more to your ways of thinking And we pray that under the reign of grace, we might live for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Should Christians vaccinate their children? That is the question we are going to answer this morning, and our text is going to answer that question. It's going to answer a lot of other questions, too, like, what is God's method for child-rearing? Should you schedule your baby's feedings or feed your baby on demand? What is the right choice for schooling your children? Homeschool, public school, public charter, private school, Christian school, classical education, trade school? What about colleges? Should you save on tuition and go to an in-state secular university? Should you only be looking at Christian schools? Should you not go into debt for college at all? Should you go to a trade school? What kinds of music should Christians listen to? What about dating? I saw that, Scott. (laughs) That was distracting. (laughs) What about dating? Should Christians date or court? Or should we just arrange marriages? Don't laugh. I like that idea. (laughs) You're laughing again. What kinds of activities are allowed on Sundays? Can Christian women work outside the home? What is the Christian view of nutrition? Tell me, dieting God's way. What about vitamins and supplements and exercise? What is God's perspective on essential oil? Can Christians borrow money? What debts should a Christian pay off first? Highest interest rates or the smallest amounts? Should you use Dave Ramsey's envelope system or should you plunge your family into financial ruin right now? What about alcohol, tobacco, and firearms? What should, amen, I heard that. What should Christians wear? What Bible version should you be reading? Is dancing okay? Can Christians go to Disneyland? Should churches use guitars for corporate worship? What if they're plugged in? What if they are run through effects boxes that produce distortion? Can a Christian fight in war? Romans 14 and 15 are going to give us the answers we've all been waiting for to all of these questions, and many more like them. I want to read our text this morning, and this section really takes us from Romans 14.1 all the way through 15.13. We're going to cover four verses this morning. Let's read those first four verses together. Here is what God directs Christians to do. The Apostle Paul writes, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, 
And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The series title is, I can't read my own handwriting. What is our series title? Preferring each other in matters of preference. Boy, that's embarrassing. There are other series titles we could have used. Deference in matters of indifference or grace in the gray. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's instructions, three of them here, for gray area coexistence in the church. Three instructions in these first four verses for gray area coexistence in the church. I want to give you, even though we're just covering the first four verses, I want to give you the principles outlined in the entirety of this section so that as we sit here this morning, we don't have a skewed view of the whole thing. We're only going to be looking at at a few principles here this morning, but there are many more in this passage that I think at least at some point we have to have all of them together so we understand what our position should be, what our practice should be with one another in areas of indifference. And I'll just list these principles out for you. We are to accept one another. Verse 1, 3, 18, and in chapter 15, verse 7. We are not to have contempt for one another, verses 3 and 10. We are not to judge one another, verse 1, 3, 4, and 10. We are to do all things in faith, and it is to be Godward. That is, everything we do in relationship to this should be in reference to God Himself. That is throughout this section, but particularly in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 14, 22, and 23. Another principle we must abide by is that we do not scandalize a brother. We do not cause another brother to stumble in areas of liberty or indifference. All of this comes under the banner of love, verse 15. We are to love one another. We are to serve Christ, verse 18. We are to build one another up, both chapter 14 and 15. We are to be peacemakers in the body of Christ, verse 19 of chapter 14. We are to carry the weak. In the beginning of chapter 15, we are to do all things in selflessness. We are to persevere in pursuit of unity. We are to glorify God. And finally, closing out the section, we are to embrace God's vision and God's plan for a unity in diversity exemplified in Jew-Gentile relationships in the church at Rome. That's kind of the whole picture and the principles that we'll be covering in the next several weeks. And this morning, we'll be looking at the first couple of those. I want to be clear uh, about what we're dealing with here in gray areas, areas of indifference or areas of Christian liberty, areas of preferences. First of all, what we're not dealing with, we're not dealing with areas of biblical doctrine, right? We are to contend earnestly for the faith. Uh, That is the the body of doctrine that is encompassed for us in the New Testament. Jude 3 says, uh, contend earnestly for these things. False teaching is not to be tolerated. False teachers are to be run out. The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And we must fight seriously for clear articulation of biblical truth. In fact, if you fast forward one page in the book of Romans, Paul says in chapter 16, verse 17, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. So it's clear what we're dealing with here are matters of indifference, and God is not indifferent to doctrine. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about the regular practice of biblical admonition. We looked at that last week. We are to admonish one another. That is to warn one another, not just about doctrinal error, but behavioral error. You are, in fact, your brother's keeper. You can read Hebrews chapter 10. There is a severe danger that if we don't encourage one another and spur one another on to love and good deeds, apostasy awaits. It's serious business. We do look out for each other in our life and conduct. These are areas of obedience to biblical commands and obedience to biblical prohibitions. The assessment of unbiblical ideas and the assessment of unbiblical behavior are not the realm of Romans 14 and 15. In fact, even thinking through biblical, uh, biblical implications from biblical principles are not what Paul is dealing with here. God's not indifferent to us living out the principles outlined for us in Scripture. This, this text addresses matters of indifference, areas of freedom, Areas of conscience, gray areas, preferences, liberties. These are areas about which the Bible gives no explicit prohibition and no clear command. And it shouldn't be surprising that there are differences of opinion amongst Christians in areas that the Bible does not explicitly address. Right? If we start with the assumption that every one of us wants to be pleasing to the Lord, let's just assume that for a moment, and we genuinely want to love one another selflessly, let's assume that too, then we will still be very different in our approach to hundreds of different life issues. And if you add to the fact that we are not always motivated by a love for God, and we're not always motivated by selfless love for others, then we quickly discover our differences in preferential things become fertile soil for disputes factions, cliques, disunity, disharmony, and conflict. And we have every reason to watch out for these things. We are all different. This is part of the beauty of God's design and the construction of the church. We are not clones. There is a wonderful diversity in us, amongst us, with one another. Looking around the room, we are young and old together. There are the seasoned saints and the inexperienced neophytes, all together in the body of Christ. There are some who have been uniquely matured by trials. There are some who feel guilt over past sins and the memories of a pre-Christian life. There are some who have grown in greater degree in Christ-likeness. There is growth in sanctification and self-discipline in the training in godliness. There are those who have grown more than others in discernment and a trained conscience. And the Holy Spirit is working differently in every single individual's life. Different people have different knowledge of Scripture, different practices in repentance. We have different personalities, different natural temperaments, different temptations, different proclivities. We have different physical bodies and different medical conditions. We have different physical and spiritual vulnerabilities. Each of us lives and works and studies in different environments. We have different families and different home lives. We face different struggles, fears, and anxieties. And each one of us has a different personal history. And what you've been through, in great measure, shapes you. It shapes your passions, your desires. It can also shape your fears. 
If you've been through certain traumatic experiences, you will be hesitant about those same situations in the future. That's just the way we are in the body of Christ. We are all very different. You know that coexist bumper sticker and each one of the letters, I know you're rolling your eyes, stands for something different. It's a silly bumper sticker, right? Islam, Christianity, Judaism, the peace sign, Hinduism, just coexist. Well, if you're driving around in a country where you can use that bumper sticker, you already do coexist, right? It just, it, 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 there's no point. But we think about the body of Christ, replace those symbols with our various giftings, our various backgrounds, our various weaknesses, and our various strengths, and coexist. God has designed us that way. And we're all smashed together in the body of Christ. And do we need this passage to help us learn to live with one another in areas where we are different that the Bible does not explicitly address? So let's look at these three principles given for us here, these three instructions for gray area coexistence in the church here in verses 1 to 4. The first one is the command, welcome the weak. Welcome the weak. Look what Paul says. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, verse 1, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. This command, accept the weak, to accept here is to welcome and to treat as family. This is the same verb Paul used to Philemon in the letter to Philemon about Onesimus the slave and says, welcome him as you would welcome me. The warm, friendly, cordial greeting inviting the apostle Paul into the home of Philemon. Welcome Onesimus that way. And here... Believers are to welcome the weak in that same way. Welcome into the intimate fellowship of the church to hold them in honor as a member of the family. No cliques, no exclusion, no second-class status. The same word is used in verse 3. We'll see it in a moment to describe God's acceptance of believers into his family. And notice who is to be welcomed in this manner. The weak in faith. And there's a contrast in these verses between the weak and the strong. It's illustrated in verses 1 to 4 by how believers thought about food, in verses 5 to 12 by how Christians had different opinions about holidays, and in verses 13 to 23 by how Christians had different opinions about food and drink. Now look at verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Here, the strong are described this way, faith to eat everything. The weak eats only vegetables. These are matters of preference, of individual conscience, and of Christian liberty. There are no dietary restrictions given to New Testament believers. I thought there was a verse about don't eat mayonnaise. I couldn't find it. I'm sure sure it was in there somewhere. Paul does not specify who the weak are in this example, But there were clearly people for whom eating meat presented a problem in relation to their faith. Faith here refers to a person's assurance at the heart level about particular conduct. Uh, This is not the body of doctrine of the New Testament. This is about a person's confidence that the Word of God authorizes a particular behavior. That that behavior poses no spiritual threat to their spiritual well-being. And we know this down in verse 23, uh, that the weak has a difficulty relating to faith or confidence in relationship to food. 
Verse 23 says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So the weak here has a, has a difficulty having confidence before God that eating certain things will not pose a threat to his spiritual life. Now, why would someone be hesitant to eat meat? And we're not talking about dietary vegetarians. If you're a vegetarian for health reasons, that's not what Paul's addressing. If you're a vegetarian for moral reasons because you don't believe animals should die, we need to have another conversation, um, probably about the, the, the um, primitive central nervous system that broccoli has that responds to pain, we've discovered, so uh, we need to talk about that. Um, but that's not the issue here. Why, why would people in Rome in the first century have a hang-up about eating meat? Well, there's a Jewish motivation for that hang-up. One was idolatry. I, I, if, I'm a, if I'm a Jew in the first century, I've been careful my whole life about things that were given unto idols, as if my eating of those things would be some sort of participation in the celebration of idolatry. And, and so Jews who have been careful their whole life about that would be careful to avoid it. Uh, another Jewish problem would be the kosher preparation of all foods. There were uh, specific things that had to be done in a kosher kitchen where items were separated. Uh, you know the injunction that uh, uh, you were not to eat a goat boiled in its mother's milk. Well, that clear command got expanded a little bit so that if you go to a, a modern-day Jewish kosher, kosher kitchen, you have a separate refrigerator for the milk and a separate refrigerator for the meat. They're not allowed to be together, to cross-contaminate. And so Jewish sensitivities related to kosher cooking might have been an impact in Rome. And it would have been particularly difficult for Jews after the expulsion of Jews from Rome by the Emperor Claudius when they came back to the city to find kosher prepared meats. It might be a difficult shopping trip. So you know what, I'm just going to eat Brussels sprouts for now. There were also Jewish or uh, Gentile hang-ups uh, about eating meat that were present in the first century church. One was a pagan idolatry background. If a Gentile came from a history of pagan idolatry and didn't want any more associations with that, he didn't want to go buy a ribeye steak that it, where the cow had just been sacrificed to an idol. Never mind the fact that an idol is nothing. Never mind the fact that the idolatry itself isn't being practiced by the one eating. But uh, I'm just not comfortable with that. Another Gentile motivation might have been those Gentiles who had become God-fearers and attached themselves to the God of Israel. They were sort of proselyte Jews, and they too would have been hindered by the kosher preparation regulations. And Paul doesn't specify that, and that's helpful here in Romans because what he's going to say applies to all kinds of freedom of conscience issues. The weak here... Uh, regarding food in verses 1 to 4 and special days in verses 5 and following. They are not those who believe that by refraining from certain foods or by setting apart certain days, they're therefore justified before God. That's not a matter of indifference. That's a threat to the gospel. Paul would never stand for people who said, if I just eat the right foods and if I just worship on the certain days, then I have an in with God and I guarantee my place in heaven. Read Galatians, read Colossians. Paul would be opposed to such things. What he's dealing with here is not a threat to the gospel, a threat to doctrine. He would never tolerate those kinds of things. 
What's at stake here clearly are not sin issues, not salvation issues. And notice in this section, neither is condemned. Neither the weak nor the strong are condemned. As if they're doing something wrong. Paul does not bring correction here to the fundamental view related to their weakness or strength. Uh, Paul will side with the strong later. Look down at verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So you see, Paul actually has a view. Paul does eat bacon. <laughs> but, but he's not condemning the weak for their view here. Paul does not say to the vegetarians, let me fix your weakness. Ditch the asparagus. We're going to In-N-Out Burger. Here, eat this double-double animal style. That is not the next verse. Paul instead gives instructions to both groups so that the unity of the church can be preserved among people with very different opinions and practices regarding neutral areas. And he begins with the command of verse 1, accept the one weak in faith. Make that one feel like part of the family. Now this command indicates that in Rome at this time, the vegetarians were probably in the minority. So the onus is on the majority to not let the minority opinion feel excluded. And notice the second half of verse 1, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. You don't welcome him in contingent on the hope that you can change his mind. Your goal is not to get him grown up so that he imitates your liberties. You're not allowed to confront, criticize, harass, wear him down as the condition of your warm fellowship. No, you welcome him. You make him feel part of the family, not second class. And this is a real temptation. You might be thinking, if I don't change his view about Christian liberties, I might get stuck eating Brussels sprout quiche instead of bacon and sausage and chicken fried steak. The sweet fellowship of a diversity of believers is at stake here. And so Paul makes it clear, you welcome him. And you don't welcome him for the purpose of judging his opinions. He's not to feel like the odd man out. He's not to feel unwanted, but loved, an unjudged member of the family. And this leads us right into the second instruction that Paul gives for gray area coexistence. Refrain from judgment, verse 3. Let's read it. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Look, there's a temptation towards judgment that goes both ways. Meat eaters show contempt for the vegetarians. The vegetarians judge the spiritual condition of the meat eaters. <laughs> Let's break this down a little bit. There's a prohibition and a reason both for the strong and the weak. First, let's deal with the strong. To the ones whose hearts are assured from the word of God that eating meat does not wound their conscience, does not pose a threat to their spiritual life, here's the charge. Don't look down from your bacon burger to sneer at your brother's cauliflower and bean salad. You don't engage in ridicule, sarcasm. You don't say, here, have a bite of this thick, juicy burger. You don't look down at him. You don't show contempt for him or despise him. And the reason's not stated here in verse 3, but the rest of this section unfolds that. The contempt shown to the weaker brother poses a danger to his soul. 
Look, if he goes ahead and eats your bacon burger while his heart has not assured him that he has liberty before the Lord to do so, did this come from a kosher kitchen? Was the meat sacrificed to idols? If he eats while his conscience is troubled, then he has actually sinned. And you've helped him do that. You just became a cause for his sin before the Lord. You have paved the way for him to sin in other areas, not gray areas, not matters of indifference, because you've made it easy and acceptable for him to violate his conscience and sin in that area. And why did you do that? So that you could feel more comfortable eating your burger. That is not love. That is not a Godward perspective on bacon burgers. You're not eating your burger unto the Lord at that point. You're actually sinning. You see, the definition of strong here is not, I can do whatever I want because I'm informed, I'm enlightened, and I'm not hung up on your scruples. Friends, that is not spiritual strength. Strong faith means whether I eat or drink, I do all to the glory of God. It is clean conscience burger eating within the bounds of God's directives with gratitude for God's provision and love for God's people. And if you're eating to flaunt your so-called liberties while bringing harm to your brother's spiritual life, it is not love, it is not unto God, and it is not strong faith. It's just selfish. And it breaks apart the sweet fellowship of the body of Christ. Now Paul sides with the strong on this food issue. We read verse 14 earlier. Look at verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Do you see the problem? Listen to 1 Timothy 4. There are men who advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with gratitude, it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. But look at at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong, we who know and live by 1 Timothy 4.3 or by Romans 14.14, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. What's the injunction? Peace, edification, building my brother up. Uh, The injunction is love and the glory of God. Listen, your liberties are subordinated to love. Your liberties are to be subordinated to love. You are not free to harm your brother. You are not free to violate your own conscience. You are never free to transgress a prohibition or neglect a duty clearly articulated in Scripture. Don't misunderstand liberty and freedom. So the judgment prohibited in verse 3 is the judgment of the weak, of the strong against the weak. But notice the second half of verse 3, it goes the other way around. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. To the weak, God says, don't judge the eater. Don't judge his devotion, his motives, his spiritual condition. And this is the temptation for the one who has chosen not to eat. Because for him, eating would be sin. He's therefore tempted to assume that eating would be sin for his brother also. How can that guy even be a Christian eating a burger like that? Bacon grease dripping all down his beard. 
The weak brother assumes that the meat-eating brother has engaged in high-handed rebellion against the Lord. It would be wrong for me. It must be wrong for him. For any of you who grew up Catholic, you remember fish on Fridays. I didn't grow up Catholic. I went to a public elementary school, and we still had fish on Fridays to accommodate the Catholics in the school. Why fish on Fridays? Because they didn't allow meat eating on Fridays. I always wondered about that. I grew up in Alaska. We had meat all the time. It was called king salmon and halibut and rainbow trout. (laughs) I thought fish was meat. Never mind that confusion. But imagine a new believer who doesn't yet know that fish on Fridays is not in the Bible. But his conscience is still bound. His faith has not yet been strengthened with the truth. He might see another Christian eating tri-tip sandwich for Friday lunch and think, wow, that guy doesn't even care about the Lord. That's what he's been trained in his whole life. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a church in his day that found out who in the church owned a television set and disbarred them from the Lord's table. Some of you are going, man, that's a good idea. (laughs) I was told by a King James only person in a parking lot that I was not a Christian. And this after a 25-minute conversation about the gospel where we agreed about total depravity, where we agreed about the only solution to, for sinners to be made right before a holy God was the cross of Christ in our place. And we agreed with the importance of faith alone in Christ alone. We both talked about repentance. And as we were leaving, as we were parting company, he said, oh, by the way, what, what Bible do you read? The Greek New Testament. Backslidden. Backslidden. Yeah, you you only should be reading the King James Bible, and anyone who's not is not a Christian. Whoa. If you saw someone smoking in the church parking lot, you might make some assumptions about their walk with the Lord. What if you saw R.C. Sproul smoking a cigarette? (laughs) He did. Not forever. When I was in Mountain City, Tennessee, I was a college student, and I had visited a church in Mountain City, went and sat in this Baptist church, and um, heard the gospel preached, heard the Bible taught, sweet fellowship of believers. The only two industries in Mountain City, Tennessee are the local penitentiary and tobacco farming. Went out in the parking lot after church, and everybody lit up a cigarette. And they would have been offended. They would have thought it sinful for a woman to wear pants in church. It's different. I'm not recommending you take up cigarette smoking. There's probably a principle involved there about not being mastered by anything. Right? But there's a command here for the weak brother... Don't judge your brother whom you see exercising some liberty that you don't feel free to exercise. And here, the reason is stated in verse 3. Why? For God has accepted him. 
Same word is up in verse, verse 1. God sees what we cannot observe, the hidden person of the heart, the motives, the devotion, the faith, the Godwardness of your brother in his exercise of Christian liberty. Look, you're going to find yourself somewhere on a spectrum of weak to strong on almost every issue that is not expressly addressed in the Bible. You will inevitably interact with Christians who are more liberal than you or more conservative than you on virtually every practice. That is okay. We're different. Your job in the Christian life is not to assess the motives of every other Christian in the practice or restraint in indifferent areas. I don't own a cable subscription. I don't believe it is sin, but I'm pretty sure I might sin if I did. I am not allowed to judge the motives, the devotion, or the spiritual condition of other Christians on the basis of their having a cable subscription. Look, a great test of whether this is a a biblical area or an area of freedom is this. Can it be settled with a text of Scripture? Can the neutral issue itself... Can we address heart issues, motivations, godwardness, I do all things for the glory of Christ? Those things can be measured and talked about, but the thing itself, can it be settled with a text of Scripture? Let me give you an example that my family has had to work through. I did not ask my kids permission. Uh, I will be asking forgiveness, perhaps. I'm so sorry, kids. We have five kids. They go to school. They play sports. There's a lot of picking up kids and dropping them off at various places, and Every other kid has cell phones. The world relies on cell phones to get things done now. Teachers give kids assignments that require internet access. Coaches tell kids to call their parents to pick them up after practice. And you add to that the fact that it seems like every kid has a smartphone with internet access and multiple social media accounts. And kids play online games with strangers and they post their thoughts on social media And my kids have been odd man out in that world. We've been really slow to let our kids have phones, and we're really particular about what is accessible on phones. And frankly, this has complicated our lives. (laughs) It's caused our kids to be left behind and left out. Just a word to parents. Um, You don't have to succumb to the pressure of the normal. Everybody's doing it. (laughs) And just a word to kids, don't pressure your parents with the everybody else has a smartphone argument. Um, Don't cause your parents to stumble. They're responsible for your soul. Look, every family must do its best to navigate this world in a way that is pleasing to God. And a phone by itself is a neutral device. Twitter, Instagram, by themselves, they are neutral applications. I find myself in the area of a weak brother in this area. I actually do have weak faith in regard to Twitter. I can't handle fame, notoriety, or negative feedback from strangers online. So I don't tweet. I did for a little while. It didn't last long. I kept sinning. I wanted to know what people thought about me. I was horrified when people were negative and I was puffed up when people were positive. Cancel. I'm weak. I should grow in my faith. (laughs) But I want to please the Lord. And so until fear of man is crucified in my heart, I do not need a Twitter account. It is a threat to my soul. 
And my parenting falls in the category of weaker brother. Again, the weakness here is not always a deficiency. I just don't have the knowledge, the disposition, the strength to parent four daughters and a son with social media accounts. Can that be done in a God-honoring way? Yes, of course it can. I, I, I just, I don't know how I could pull it off. I'm not strong that way. Again, the, the weakness here, the, the weaker brother is not condemned by Paul, not condemned by God. In fact, the brother who recognizes his weakness and is conscientious toward the Lord is to be praised. So what must I do in this situation? Let's just have a little exercise here for a moment. Replace the word eat with the phrase, let their kids have an iPhone in the first few verses of Romans 14. Let's just do that together. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may let his kids have an iPhone, but he who is weak does not. Did I say that backwards? Okay. Verse 3, the one who lets his kids have an iPhone is not to regard with contempt the one who does not let his kids have an iPhone. And the one who does not let his kids have an iPhone is not to judge the one who does let his kids have an iPhone. Why? Because God has accepted him. And just run any indifferent measure or matter through that lens. What is your obligation before the Lord and to your fellow believers? To the strong? To the weak? Look, does the Bible expressly condemn or forbid something? Is there a biblical principle at stake? Look, in smartphones, is there a principle that's involved? We talked about it last week, Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. But look, that's not a provision for the flesh for everybody in the same way. The command here is don't judge each other in these things. One commentator said this to the strong, how a strong man loves to walk with a little child, holding his hand gently, not ridiculing or scorning his weakness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Let us walk with weaker brethren. And to the weak, the same commentator says, it is much more difficult for us really to believe in our hearts that God approves a man of wide Christian liberty than to believe that God approves of a man of many conscientious scruples. Right? If you're on the more conservative end of a given issue than someone else, to think, oh yeah, God loves that guy and has accepted him? That's hard. We need help. Matthew Henry said this, we have work enough in our own hearts. That's right. There's help for us in the last instruction of gray area coexistence. Verse 4, uh, the, the bottom line here is trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with these relationships, with these difficulties. Here's how Paul says it. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is an emphatic rhetorical question that takes us off the throne. You're not the Lord. You're not the Lord over another believer. We are not to be lords over one another. I am not to hold my gray area conviction over you. 
This is a, a difficult thing when, when I'm not actually tempted in a certain thing, but I want to claim weaker brother status because I want to control your behavior. And so I've limited my activities, and maybe I've limited my activities in ways that just come easy to me, and I want you and I want your life to look like my life. I want you to limit yourself the way it comes easy for me to limit myself, or maybe ways I've worked hard at it. And then if you look like me, that vindicates my choices, it inflates my self-righteous pride, it makes me feel good about myself, it makes me feel more spiritual than others, and you've forgotten that this posturing puts you in the weaker brother category. You're saying, I'm a weaker brother. The true weaker brother is admitting the limited capacity of his own faith to be pleasing to God in a gray area. But the self-righteous just wants to control other people's behavior. If you do that, you've taken the Lord's place in the life of another believer. Now read verse 4 again. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own mastery stands or falls. The house in the ancient world answered to the master of the house. Guests could not come into the party and give the house servant orders. That would be an insult to the master of the house. The guest comes in and tells the DJ to drop some different tunes. No, the master of the house planned the party. The other servants can't change the orders that the master gave to one servant. The guests can't change the orders that the servant received from the master. The house servant answers to the master of the house. That's Paul's argument. And when the weak and the strong get into telling each other what to do in areas of indifference, no one benefits. Quarrels, finger-pointing, judgment, division. What if somebody won? What if the strong won the argument? Bacon burgers every Friday! And, and, and the former Catholic with a burdened conscience is run over. The Jew accustomed to kosher kitchen keeping is run over. And the Gentile who just came out of a life of pagan idolatry where he used to eat bacon burgers as a sacrifice to a pagan deity, his conscience is ruined, his soul is disturbed, his spiritual life is run aground. What if the weak won the argument? No bacon burgers ever. We all become clones and either way, you bow to the lowest common denominator of liberty or the lowest common denominator of conviction. And when we do either of those, the gospel gets confused. What does a Christian life look like? Well, everybody drives the same car, takes the same vacations, reads the same books, interacts with the world in the same way. And if anyone deviates, you're backslidden. All of a sudden, we're confused about what did God actually direct the Christian life to be like. It looks like the way to heaven is to keep all of these rules, where that community looks all the same. The true obedience to Christ is confused. Actual biblical commands and prohibitions are put in the back seat. The gospel is buried under the minutia of lives regulated by the ever-watching eyes of little brother. And what does the text say here? To his own master, each believer stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
It rings with that truth we see at the conclusion of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Let's pray. God, thank you that you, by your grace, are able, powerful, and committed to make us stand. Oh God, we want to be pleasing to you. I pray that you would use this section of scripture to keep us from running to sin and calling it liberty, of wanting others to live like we do to approve behavior that you don't approve. Pray that you would use these texts to help us to not judge the motives of others who may very well be living for your glory and the activities that would be sin for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we are under the reign of grace, no longer under the tyranny and the dominion of sin. We are your slaves, and you, our master, are able to make us stand. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.